Chapter Eight of the Oregon Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter Eight. Taking French Leave. On the eighth of June at eleven o'clock, we reached the South Fork of the Platte at the usual fording place. For league upon league, the desert uniformity of the prospect was almost unbroken. The hills were dotted with little tufts of shriveled grass, but betwixt these the white sand was glaring in the sun, and the channel of the river, almost on a level with the plain, was but one great sand-bed, about half a mile wide. It was covered with water, but so scantily that the bottom was scarcely hidden, for wide as it is, the average depth of the plat does not at this point exceed a foot and a half. Stopping near its bank, we gathered bois de vache and made a meal of buffalo meat. Far off on the other side was a green meadow where we could see the white tents and wagons of an emigrant camp, and just opposite to us we could discern a group of men and animals at the water's edge. Four or five horsemen soon entered the river, and in ten minutes had waded across and clambered up the loose sandbank. They were ill-looking fellows, thin and swarthy, with careworn, anxious faces and lips rigidly compressed. They had good cause for anxiety. It was three days since they first encamped here, and on the night of their arrival they had lost a hundred and twenty-three of their best cattle, driven off by the wolves through the neglect of the man on guard. This discouraging and alarming calamity was not the first that had overtaken them. Since leaving the settlements they had met with nothing but misfortune. Some of their party had died. One man had been killed by the Pawnees, and about a week before they had been plundered by the Dakotas of all their best horses, the wretched animals on which our visitors were mounted being the only ones that were left. They had encamped, they told us, near sunset by the side of the Platte, and their oxen were scattered over the meadow, while the band of horses were feeding a little farther off. Suddenly the ridges of the hills were alive with a swarm of mounted Indians, at least six hundred in number who with a tremendous yell came pouring down toward the camp, rushing up within a few rods to the great terror of the emigrants. But, suddenly wheeling, they swept around the band of horses, and in five minutes had disappeared with their prey through the openings of the hills. As these emigrants were telling their story, we saw four other men approaching. They proved to be R and his companions, who had encountered no mischance of any kind, but had only wandered too far in pursuit of the game. They said they had seen no Indians, but only millions of buffalo, and both R. and Sorel had meat dangling behind their saddles. The emigrants recrossed the river, and we prepared to follow. First the heavy ox-wagons plunged down the bank and dragged slowly over the sand-beds. Sometimes the hoofs of the oxen were scarcely wetted by the thin sheet of water, and the next moment the river would be boiling against their sides and eddying fiercely around the wheels. Inch by inch they receded from the shore, dwindling every moment, until at length they seemed to be floating far in the very middle of the river. A more critical experiment awaited us, for our little mule-cart was but ill-fitted for the passage of so swift a stream. We watched it with anxiety till it seemed to be a little motionless white speck in the midst of the waters, and it was motionless, for it had stuck fast in a quicksand. The little mules were losing their footing, the wheels were sinking deeper and deeper, and the water began to rise through the bottom and drench the goods within. 
all of us who had remained on the hither bank galloped to the rescue the men jumped into the water adding their strength to that of the mules until by much effort the cart was extricated and conveyed in safety across as we gained the other bank a rough group of men surrounded us they were not robust nor large of frame yet they had an aspect of hardy endurance finding at home no scope for their fiery energies they had betaken themselves to the prairie and in them seemed to be revived with redoubled force that fierce spirit which impelled their ancestors scarce more lawless than themselves from the german forests to inundate europe and break to pieces the roman empire a fortnight afterward this unfortunate party passed fort laramie while we were there not one of their missing oxen had been recovered though they had remained encamped a week in search of them and they had been compelled to abandon a great part of their baggage and provisions and yoke cows and heifers to their wagons to carry them forward upon their journey the most toilsome and hazardous part of which lay still before them it is worth noticing that on the plat one may sometimes see the shattered wrecks of ancient claw-footed tables well waxed and rubbed or massive bureaus of carved oak these many of them no doubt the relics of ancestral prosperity in the colonial time must have encountered strange vicissitudes imported perhaps originally from england then with declining fortunes of their owners borne across the alleghanies to the remote wilderness of ohio or kentucky then to illinois or missouri and now at last fondly stowed away in the family wagon for the interminable journey to oregon but the stern privations of the way are little anticipated. The cherished relic is soon flung out to scorch and crack upon the hot prairie. We resumed our journey, but we had gone scarcely a mile when R. called out from the rear, "'We'll camp here!' "'Why do you want to camp? Look at the sun, it's not three o'clock yet.' "'We'll camp here!' This was the only reply vouchsafed. Delorier was in advance with his cart. Seeing the mule-wagon wheeling from the track, he began to turn his own team in the same direction. "'Go on, Delorier!' and the little cart advanced again. As we rode on, we soon heard the wagon of our confederates creaking and jolting on behind us, and the driver, Wright, discharging a furious volley of oaths against his mules, no doubt venting upon them the wrath which he dared not direct against a more appropriate object. Something of this sort had frequently occurred. Our English friend was by no means partial to us, and we thought we discovered in his conduct a deliberate intention to thwart and annoy us, especially by retarding the movements of the party, which he knew that we, being Yankees, were anxious to quicken. Therefore he would insist on encamping at all unseasonable hours, saying that fifteen miles was a sufficient day's journey. Finding our wishes systematically disregarded, we took the direction of affairs into our own hands, keeping always in advance to the inexpressible indignation of R. We encamped at what time and place we thought proper, not much caring whether the rest chose to follow or not. They always did so, however, pitching their tents near ours with sullen and wrathful countenances. Traveling together on these agreeable terms did not suit our tastes. For some time we had meditated a separation. The connection with this party had cost us various delays and inconveniences, and the glaring want of courtesy and good sense displayed by their virtual leader did not dispose us to bear these annoyances with much patience. 
we resolved to leave camp early in the morning and push forward as rapidly as possible for fort laramie which we hoped to reach by hard traveling in four or five days the captain soon trotted up between us and we explained our intentions a very extraordinary proceeding upon my word he remarked then he began to enlarge upon the enormity of the design the most prominent impression in his mind evidently was that we were acting a base and treacherous part in deserting his party in what he considered a very dangerous stage of the journey to palliate the atrocity of our conduct we ventured to suggest that we were only four in number while his party still included sixteen men and as moreover we were to go forward and they were to follow at least a full proportion of the perils he apprehended would fall upon us but the austerity of the captain's features would not relax a very extraordinary proceeding gentlemen and repeating this he rode off to confer with his principal by good luck we found a meadow of fresh grass and a large pool of rain-water in the midst of it we encamped here at sunset plenty of buffalo skulls were lying around bleaching in the sun and sprinkled thickly among the grass was a great variety of strange flowers i had nothing else to do and so gathering a handful i sat down on a buffalo skull to study them although the offspring of a wilderness their texture was frail and delicate and their colors extremely rich pure white dark blue and a transparent crimson one traveling in this country seldom has leisure to think of anything but the stern features of the scenery and its accompaniments or the practical details of each day's journey like them he and his thoughts grow hard and rough but now these flowers suddenly awakened a train of associations as alien to the rude scene around me as they were themselves and for the moment my thoughts went back to new england a throng of fair and well-remembered faces rose vividly as life before me there are good things thought i in the savage life but what can it offer to replace those powerful and ennobling influences that can reach unimpaired over more than three thousand miles of mountains forests and deserts before sunrise on the next morning our tent was down we harnessed our best horses to the cart and left the camp but first we shook hands with our friends the emigrants who sincerely wished us a safe journey though some others of the party might easily have been consoled had we encountered an indian war party on the way the captain and his brother were standing on the top of a hill wrapped in their plaids like spirits of the mist keeping an anxious eye on the band of horses below we waved adieu to them as we rode off the ground the captain replied with a salutation of the utmost dignity which jack tried to imitate but being little practised in the gestures of polite society his effort was not a very successful one in five minutes we had gained the foot of the hills but here we came to a stop old hendrick was in the shafts and being the very incarnation of perverse and brutish obstinacy he utterly refused to move delorier lashed and swore till he was tired but hendrick stood like a rock grumbling to himself and looking askance at his enemy until he saw a favorable opportunity to take his revenge when he struck out under the shaft with such cool malignity of intention that delorier only escaped the blow by a sudden skip into the air such as no one but a frenchman could achieve shaw and he then joined forces and lashed on both sides at once the brute stood still for a while till he could bear it no longer 
when all at once he began to kick and plunge till he threatened the utter demolition of the cart and harness. We glanced back at the camp, which was in full sight. Our companions, inspired by emulation, were leveling their tents and driving in their cattle and horses. "'Take the horse out,' said I. I took the saddle from Pontiac and put it upon Hendrick. The former was harnessed to the cart in an instant. "'Avance donc!' cried Delorier. Pontiac strode up the hill, twitching the little cart after him as if it were a feather's weight, and though as we gained the top we saw the wagons of our deserted comrades just getting into motion, we had little fear that they could overtake us. Leaving the trail, we struck directly across the country and took the shortest cut to reach the main stream of the Platte. A deep ravine suddenly intercepted us. We skirted its side until we found them less abrupt, and then plunged through the best way we could. Passing behind the sandy ravines called Ash Hollow, we stopped for a short nooning at the side of a pool of rainwater, but soon resumed our journey, and some hours before sunset were descending the ravines and gorges opening downward upon the plat to the west of Ash Hollow. Our horses waded to the fetlock and sand, the sun scorched like fire, and the air swarmed with sand-flies and mosquitoes. At last we gained the plat. Following it for about five miles, we saw, just as the sun was sinking, a great meadow dotted with hundreds of cattle, and beyond them an emigrant encampment. A party of about a dozen came out to meet us, looking upon us at first with cold and suspicious faces. Seeing four men, different in appearance and equipment from themselves, emerging from the hills, they had taken us for the van of the much-dreaded Mormons, whom they were very apprehensive of encountering. We made known our true character, and then they greeted us cordially. They expressed much surprise that so small a party should venture to traverse that region, though in fact such attempts are not unfrequently made by trappers and Indian traders. We rode with them to their camp. The wagons, some fifty in number, with here and there a tent intervening, were arranged, as usual, in a circle. In the area within, the best horses were picketed and the whole circumference was glowing with the dusky light of the fires, displaying the forms of the women and children who were crowded around them. This patriarchal scene was curious and striking enough, but we made our escape from the place with all possible dispatch, being tormented by the intrusive curiosity of the men who crowded around us. Yankee curiosity was nothing to theirs. They demanded our names, where we came from, where we were going, and what was our business. The last query was particularly embarrassing, since traveling in that country, or indeed anywhere, from any other motive than gain, was an idea of which they took no cognizance. Yet they were fine-looking fellows, with an air of frankness, generosity, and even courtesy, having come from one of the least barbarous of the frontier counties. We passed about a mile beyond them and encamped. Being too few in number to stand guard without excessive fatigue, we extinguished our fire, lest it should attract the notice of wandering Indians, and, picketing our horses close around us, slept undisturbed till morning. For three days we traveled without interruption, and on the evening of the third encamped by the well-known spring on Scott's Bluff. Henry Chatillon and I rode out in the morning, and descending the western side of the bluff were crossing the plain beyond. 
Something that seemed to me a file of buffalo came into view, descending the hill several miles before us. But Henry reined in his horse, and keenly peering across the prairie with a better and more practiced eye, soon discovered its real nature. "'Indians,' he said. "'Old Smoke's lodges, I believe. Come, let us go. Wah! Get up now, five hundred dollar!' and laying on the lash with good will, he galloped forward, and I rode by his side. Not long after, a black speck became visible on the prairie, full two miles off. It grew larger and larger. It assumed the form of a man and horse, and soon we could discern a naked Indian careering at full gallop toward us. When within a furlong he wheeled his horse in a wide circle and made him describe various mystic figures upon the prairie, and Henry immediately compelled five hundred dollar to execute similar evolutions. "'It is Old Smoke's village,' said he, interpreting these signals. "'Didn't I say so?' As the Indian approached, we stopped to wait for him, when suddenly he vanished, sinking, as it were, into the earth." He had come upon one of the deep ravines that everywhere intersect these prairies. In an instant the rough head of his horse stretched upward from the edge, and the rider and steed came scrambling out and bounded up to us. A sudden jerk of the rein brought the wild, panting horse to a full stop. Then followed the needful formality of shaking hands. I forget our visitor's name. He was a young fellow of no note in his nation, yet in his person and equipments he was a good specimen of a Dakota warrior in his ordinary traveling dress. Like most of his people, he was nearly six feet high, lithely and gracefully, yet strongly proportioned, and with a skin singularly clear and delicate. He wore no paint. His head was bare, and his long hair was gathered in a clump behind, to the top of which was attached transversely, both by way of ornament and of talisman, the mystic whistle, made of the wing-bone of the war-eagle, and endowed with various magic virtues. From the back of his head descended a line of glittering brass plates, tapering from the size of a doubloon to that of a half-dime, a cumbrous ornament in high vogue among the Dakotas, and for which they pay the traders a most extravagant price. His chest and arms were naked. The buffalo robe worn over them when at rest had fallen about his waist and was confined there by a belt. This, with the gay moccasins on his feet, completed his attire. For arms he carried a quiver of dogskin at his back and a rude but powerful bow in his hand. His horse had no bridle. A cord of hair lashed around his jaw served in place of one. The saddle was of most singular construction. It was made of wood covered with rawhide, and both pommel and cantle rose perpendicularly full eighteen inches, so that the warrior was wedged firmly in his seat, whence nothing could dislodge him but the bursting of the girths. Advancing with our new companion, we found more of his people seated in a circle on the top of a hill while a rude procession came straggling down the neighboring hollow, men, women, and children, with horses dragging lodge-poles behind them. All that morning, as we moved forward, tall savages were stalking silently about us. At noon we reached Horse Creek, and as we waded through the shallow water, we saw a wild and striking scene. The main body of the Indians had arrived before us. On the farther bank stood a large and strong man, nearly naked, holding a white horse by a long cord, and eyeing us as we approached. This was the chief, whom Henry called Old Smoke. 
Just behind him, his youngest and favorite squaw sat astride of a fine mule. It was covered with caparisons of whitened skins, garnished with blue and white beads, and fringed with little ornaments of metal that tinkled with every movement of the animal. The girl had a light, clear complexion, enlivened by a spot of vermilion on each cheek. She smiled, not to say grinned upon us, showing two gleaming rows of white teeth. In her hand she carried the tall lance of her unchivalrous lord, fluttering with feathers. His round white shield hung at the side of her mule, and his pipe was slung at her back. Her dress was a tunic of deerskin, made beautifully white by means of a species of clay found on the prairie, and ornamented with beads arrayed in figures more gay than tasteful, and with long fringes at all the seams. Not far from the chief stood a group of stately figures, their white buffalo robes thrown over their shoulders gazing coldly upon us, and in the rear, for several acres, the ground was covered with a temporary encampment. Men, women, and children swarmed like bees. Hundreds of dogs of all sizes and colors ran restlessly about, and close at hand the wide shallow stream was alive with boys, girls, and young squaws, splashing, screaming, and laughing in the water. At the same time a long train of emigrant wagons were crossing the creek, and, dragging on in their slow heavy procession, passed the encampment of the people whom they and their descendants in the space of a century are to sweep from the face of the earth. The encampment itself was merely a temporary one during the heat of the day. None of the lodges were erected, but their heavy leather coverings and long poles used to support them were scattered everywhere around, among weapons, domestic utensils, and the rude harness of mules and horses. The squaws of each lazy warrior had made him a shelter from the sun by stretching a few buffalo robes, or the corner of a lodge covering, upon poles, and here he sat in the shade, with a favorite young squaw, perhaps, at his side, glittering with all imaginable trinkets. Before him stood the insignia of his rank as a warrior, his white shield of bull-hide, his medicine-bag, his bow and quiver, his lance and his pipe, raised aloft on a tripod of three poles. Except the dogs, the most active and noisy tenants of the camp were the old women, ugly as Macbeth's witches, with their hair streaming loose in the wind, and nothing but the tattered fragment of an old buffalo robe to hide their shriveled, wiry limbs. The day of their favoritism passed two generations ago. Now the heaviest labors of the camp devolved upon them. They were to harness the horses, pitch the lodges, dress the buffalo robes, and bring in meat for the hunters. With the cracked voices of these hags, the clamor of dogs, the shouting and laughing of children and girls, and the listless tranquillity of the warriors, the whole scene had an effect too lively and picturesque ever to be forgotten. We stopped not far from the Indian camp, and having invited some of the chiefs and warriors to dinner, placed before them a sumptuous repast of biscuit and coffee. Squatted in a half-circle on the ground, they soon disposed of it. As we rode forward on the afternoon journey, several of our late guests accompanied us. Among the rest was a huge bloated savage of more than three hundred pounds weight, christened Le Cochon in consideration of his preposterous dimensions, and certain corresponding traits of his character. The hog bestrode a little white pony, scarce able to bear up under the enormous burden, though by way of keeping up the necessary stimulus the rider kept both feet in constant motion, playing alternately against his ribs. The old man was not a chief. 
he never had ambition enough to become one he was not a warrior nor a hunter for he was too fat and lazy but he was the richest man in the whole village riches among the dakotas consist in horses and of these the hog had accumulated more than thirty he had already ten times as many as he wanted yet still his appetite for horses was insatiable trotting up to me he shook me by the hand and gave me to understand that he was a very devoted friend and then he began a series of most earnest signs and gesticulations, his oily countenance radiant with smiles, and his little eyes peeping out with a cunning twinkle from between the masses of flesh that almost obscured them. Knowing nothing at that time of the sign language of the Indians, I could only guess at his meaning, so I called on Henry to explain it. The hog, it seems, was anxious to conclude a matrimonial bargain. He said he had a very pretty daughter in his lodge whom he would give me, if I would give him my horse. These flattering overtures I chose to reject, at which the hog, still laughing with undiminished good humor, gathered his robe about his shoulders and rode away. Where we encamped that night, an arm of the plat ran between high bluffs. It was turbid and swift as heretofore, but trees were growing on its crumbling banks, and there was a nook of grass between the water and the hill. Just before entering this place we saw the emigrants encamping at two or three miles' distance on the right, while the whole Indian rabble were pouring down the neighboring hill in hope of the same sort of entertainment which they had experienced from us. In the savage landscape before our camp nothing but the rushing of the Platte broke the silence. Through the ragged boughs of the trees, dilapidated and half-dead, we saw the sun setting in crimson behind the peaks of the black hills. The restless bosom of the river was suffused with red. Our white tent was tinged with it, and the sterile bluffs up to the rocks that crowned them partook of the same fiery hue. It soon passed away. No light remained but that from our fire blazing high among the dusky trees and bushes. We lay around it wrapped in our blankets, smoking and conversing until a late hour, and then withdrew to our tent. We crossed a sun-scorched plain on the next morning, the line of old cottonwood trees that fringed the bank of the Platte forming its extreme verge. Nestled apparently close beneath them, we could discern in the distance something like a building. As we came nearer it assumed form and dimensions, and proved to be a rough structure of logs. It was a little trading fort belonging to two private traders, and originally intended, like all the forts of the country, to form a hollow square with rooms for lodging and storage opening upon the area within. Only two sides of it had been completed. The place was now as ill-fitted for the purposes of defense as any of those little log-houses, which upon our constantly shifting frontier have been so often successfully maintained against overwhelming odds of Indians. Two lodges were pitched close to the fort. The sun beat scorching upon the logs. No living thing was stirring except one old squaw, who thrust her round head from the opening of the nearest lodge, and three or four stout young pups who were peeping with looks of eager inquiry from under the covering. In a moment a door opened, and a little swarthy black-eyed Frenchman came out. His dress was rather singular. His black curling hair was parted in the middle of his head and fell below his shoulders. He wore a tight frock of smoked deerskin, very gaily ornamented with figures worked in dyed porcupine quills. 
His moccasins and leggings were also gaudily adorned in the same manner, and the latter had in addition a line of long fringes reaching down the seams. The small frame of Richard, for by this name Henry made him known to us, was in the highest degree athletic and vigorous. There was no superfluity, and indeed there seldom is among the active white men of this country, but every limb was compact and hard, every sinew had its full tone and elasticity, and the whole man wore an air of mingled hardihood and buoyancy. Richard committed our horses to a Navajo slave, a mean-looking fellow taken prisoner on the Mexican frontier, and, relieving us of our rifles with ready politeness, led the way into the principal apartment of his establishment. This was a room ten feet square. The walls and floor were of black mud, and the roof of rough timber. There was a huge fireplace made of four flat rocks picked up on the prairie. An Indian bow and otter-skin quiver, several gaudy articles of Rocky Mountain finery, an Indian medicine bag, and a pipe and tobacco pouch garnished the walls, and rifles rested in a corner. There was no furniture except a sort of rough settle covered with buffalo robes, upon which lolled a tall half-breed, with his hair glued in masses upon each temple, and saturated with vermilion. Two or three more mountain men sat cross-legged on the floor. Their attire was not unlike that of Richard himself, but the most striking figure of the group was a naked Indian boy of sixteen, with a handsome face and light active proportions, who sat in an easy posture in the corner near the door. Not one of his limbs moved the breadth of a hair. His eye was fixed immovably, not on any person present, but, as it appeared, on the projecting corner of the fireplace opposite to him. On these prairies the custom of smoking with friends is seldom omitted, whether among Indians or whites. The pipe, therefore, was taken from the wall, and its great red bowl crammed with the tobacco and shang-sasha mixed in suitable proportions. Then it passed round the circle, each man inhaling a few whiffs and handing it to his neighbor. Having spent half an hour here, we took our leave, first inviting our new friends to drink a cup of coffee with us at our camp a mile farther up the river. By this time, as the reader may conceive, we had grown rather shabby. Our clothes had burst into rags and tatters, and what was worse, we had very little means of renovation. Fort Laramie was but seven miles before us. Being totally averse to appearing in such plight among any society that could boast an approximation to the civilized, we soon stopped by the river to make our toilet in the best way we could. We hung up small-looking glasses against the trees and shaved, an operation neglected for six weeks. We performed our ablutions in the plat, though the utility of such a proceeding was questionable, the water looking exactly like a cup of chocolate and the banks consisting of the softest and richest yellow mud, so that we were obliged as a preliminary to build a causeway of stout branches and twigs. Having also put on radiant moccasins procured from a squaw of Richard's establishment, and made what other improvements our narrow circumstances allowed, we took our seats on the grass with a feeling of greatly increased respectability to wait the arrival of our guests. They came, the banquet was concluded, and the pipe smoked. Bidding them adieu, we turned our horses' heads toward the fort. An hour elapsed. The barren hills closed across our front, and we could see no farther, until, having surmounted them, a rapid stream appeared at the foot of the descent running into the plat. 
Beyond was a green meadow dotted with bushes, and in the midst of these, at the point where the two rivers joined, were the low clay walls of a fort. This was not Fort Laramie, but another post of less recent date, which, having sunk before its successful competitor, was now deserted and ruinous. A moment after, the hills, seeming to draw apart as we advanced, disclosed Fort Laramie itself, its high bastions and perpendicular walls of clay crowning an eminence on the left beyond the stream, while behind stretched a line of arid and desolate ridges, and behind these again, towering aloft seven thousand feet, arose the grim Black Hills. We tried to ford Laramie Creek at a point nearly opposite the fort, but the stream, swollen with the rains in the mountains, was too rapid. We passed up along its bank to find a better crossing place. Men gathered on the wall to look at us. "'There's Bordeaux,' called Henry, his face brightening as he recognized his acquaintance. "'Him there with the spyglass. And there's old Vasquez and Tucker and May. And by George, there's Simoneau.' This Simoneau was Henry's fast friend, and the only man in the country who could rival him in hunting." We soon found a ford. Henry led the way, the pony approaching the bank with a countenance of cool indifference, bracing his feet and sliding into the stream with the most unmoved composure. At the first plunge the horse sunk low, and the water broke o'er the saddle-bow. We followed. The water boiled against our saddles, but our horses bore us easily through. The unfortunate little mules came near going down with the current cart and all, and we watched them with some solicitude scrambling over the loose round stones at the bottom and bracing stoutly against the stream. All landed safely at last. We crossed a little plain, descended a hollow, and riding up a steep bank found ourselves before the gateway of Fort Laramie, under the impending blockhouse erected above it to defend the entrance. End of chapter 8